this is Jamda on the go your review of the content featured in Jamda the research focused monthly journal of Amda the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for July 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Much of the July issue of Jamda is about psychosocial issues in the care of older persons, both in the community and in post-acute and long-term care settings. And today we're going to focus on four papers from that issue. As usual, I'll be speaking with Jamda co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Drs. Sloan and Brown are both faculty in family medicine and geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Sloan and Brown. Thank you. We're happy to be here. All right. So there's a lot of talk these days about trauma-informed care, but how does this notion apply to residents of nursing homes? Dr. Sloan, I understand that one paper in this month's Jamdis shed some light on these issues. Please tell us about that. Well, you know, there's no doubt that traumatic life events can have long-standing impact and that PTSD is very common in the general population. What is less clear is whether it's a good idea to routinely inquire about past trauma when a patient enters a long-term care facility. And if so, then the second layer of this issue is whether, when, and how to routinely inquire into this, and how do you do it when the long-term care resident has dementia? Hmm. This paper in July's Jamba is an opinion piece from a diverse group of six faculty in nursing, neuroscience, medicine, and psychiatry. They begin by explaining that prior trauma is very common in older persons. They point out that war veterans and Holocaust survivors have particularly high rates of PTSD. They point out that research has demonstrated that adults with PTSD have three times the likelihood of becoming disabled. And they point out that COVID-19, as we know, added real significant stressors and most likely caused a lot of PTSD. You know, things like see, not seeing family, seeing loved ones through a window, or having staff wear masks all the time, especially for people with dementia. So given this background, they point out that several CMS survey F tags can be applied if a facility does not have a robust approach to behavioral health and PTSD. They include the F tag F699, which is trauma-informed care, which is the quality of care F tag plus five other F tags that could be cited related to care plans, training, staffing, and treatment of mental and psychosocial concerns. So the article includes recommendations, uh, a broad array of things around having evidence-informed mental health support available within the facility. 
um, promotion of a positive work environment and steps to assure employee well-being. As part of this overall program, they recommend screening residents upon entry for past traumatic events and admission interviews of both residents and families as part of an overall trauma-informed framework for aged care. Now, this opinion piece was presented as an editorial. It certainly offers food for thought. My own feeling is that they may be going a bit far in looking to the past rather than the present and explaining behavioral expressions in dementia and in the population in general. And that they go a little far in extrapolating research on younger adults to nursing home residents, as this is a relatively new area with little research. On the other hand, there's no question that the idea of linking behavior and mood to real events, both past and present, is critical to good care, mm. and that mental health services could really be improved in long-term care. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> now, I know we could talk about this for a long time and have other topics to cover, but I'd be interested in your thoughts, you know, Carl, Mallory, about this topic. Sure. Well, I do have a couple of thoughts, and one is that when the 2016 revision of the federal nursing home regulations under Title 42 were released, we public policy folks at AMDA were a little surprised at the degree of kind of emphasis on trauma-informed care. But we did agree that many of our nursing home residents and staff for that matter do have significant trauma histories. And since the last time they revised the DSM-5, uh, the criteria for PTSD have been significantly relaxed. So that means a lot more people sort of have a legitimate PTSD diagnosis. And I do believe that our sort of medical industrial complex, especially hospitals and ICUs, but certainly nursing homes too, are a setup for significant trauma for a lot of our patients. So to the extent we can be respectful of that and avoid triggering, like waking up people for vitals at 2 a.m., or you know, having alarms going off all the time or constantly checking finger stick blood sugars, uh, I think it's a great goal for us to always keep in mind uh, to be intentional about what we order as clinicians and what we are actually putting our, our patients, our nursing home residents through. Uh, Mallory, anything else? No, I think the two of you covered it quite well. It, I mean, it really, traumas certainly impact the way that people feel and um, impact their health in general. And so I think this editorial is a, a really thoughtful piece to help us all to be more considerative, uh, considerate of, um, of how we screen and as people come in, just ensuring that we get to know them and what it is that's the basis for their own mental and physical health. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and treat them accordingly and do avoid doing things that make them feel bad, right? That's, that's just person-centered care. So great, thank you. So next, we're gonna turn to a topic that affects all of us, sleep, and whether there is a scientific basis for recommending more or less of it, or whether there's a, a sweet spot as far as uh, optimal sleep. So Dr. Brown, I understand a paper in this month's JAMDA relates the amount of nighttime sleep with long-term health outcomes in a cohort of older persons in Japan. What does it tell us? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how much the two of you have thought about sleep recently, but um, being the mother of two young children, I have absolutely obsessed over it in the past few years. I myself need seven hours consistently to really function at my best. And I am clearly aware of that after not getting that for a 
span of about three of the last five years. Um, so I was really eager to read this article to understand more about sleep duration and life expectancy and, um, and health in general. So this study set out to examine the association between sleep duration and healthy life expectancy by taking a closer look at disability-free life expectancy in a large cohort of Japanese older adults. Using data from the Osaki cohort 2006 study and excluding individuals based on consent given, disability before follow-up, and those who actually had passed away, the authors analyzed nearly 15,000 participants. These individuals were categorized into six hours, seven hours, eight hours, or nine hour sleepers. For the next 13 years, incident functional disability and death were followed. The estimated disability-free life expectancies were 20.5 years for those sleeping six hours, 21.0 hours for those sleeping seven hours, 20.1 years for those sleeping eight hours, and 19.2 years for hours for those sleeping nine hours in males, and were 23.6 years hours for six hours of sleep, 24.1 years for seven hours of sleep, 23.2 years for eight hours of sleep, and 22.1 years for nine hours of sleep in women. So all of those numbers, basically, people sleeping seven hours had the longest disability-free life expectancy, whereas those sleeping nine hours or longer had shorter life expectancies. Regarding duration with disability, barely any difference was actually noted in the observed males. However, in females, duration with disability was about half a year longer in those sleeping nine hours or more than in the other three subgroups. I'm impressed with the large sample size of the study, as well as the relatively long duration of follow-up and the high rate of contact with the individuals that were participating. The authors acknowledge that the sleep duration was self-reported, and so that could be a limiting factor to the study. But in the end, the author's conclusion is that maintaining the optimal sleep duration, which here is seven hours, that's what they've shown, may have notable benefits on extending healthy life expectancy in older adults. So I'll be sure to mention this to the next person who tries to keep me up past my bedtime of 9.30. I don't know about you all. <laughs> well, gosh, 9.30, but you must get up mighty early. That's all I, I can do. say. do. <laughs> so I guess I shouldn't plan on living to a ripe old age because I'm one of those nine-hour people and you know, with no immediate plans to change my sleeping habits. Uh, I hope getting calls in the middle of the night sort of gets me a little bit of credit on, on the life expectancy, but... But seriously, I've seen other studies that suggest there's sort of a U-shaped curve as far as optimal sleep duration. And one interesting question that comes to mind is whether modifying this behavior would actually change your life expectancy or, you know, is it really cause and effect? Uh, Phil, any, any comments on that? Well, like Mallory, I've thought about it a lot, in part because I'm not the world's greatest sleeper, and especially if I had too much coffee or you know, I had a little bit too much wine in the evening and then I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. I don't know whether to do some work or try to go back to sleep. We think about it a lot. Um, I've seen a lot of other literature and I do agree. There's a U-shaped curve and kind of where the bottom of the curve is. Um, it's somewhere between six and a half hours and eight hours, I think, but everybody's different. Mm. And um, I do know people like you, Carl, who just, they're not going to function well if they don't get enough sleep. And, um, you know, even if it's nine hours or there are a few people who think 10 hours is what they need and they're healthy and they're young and they're going to, I think they're going to do fine. I, 
<laughs> we all put our own personal spin on this stuff, you know? Yep, that we do. Um, all right, well, so now we're going to change gears and talk about guardianship and decision-making in older persons with cognitive impairment, something that most of us as clinicians uh, deal with all the time. So, Dr. Sloan, can you please tell us a little bit about this paper? You know, I like this paper a lot, and it's an interesting read, but it's quite extensive, and so I'll only hit what to me are a couple of the key points. It's about challenges that can arise as we try to arrive at the best possible decision regarding such things as whether or not to initiate treatment in persons who have cognitive impairment. The first thing the authors point out is that over the past decades, guardianship and decision-making has shifted from what we used to call the best interests model to the supported decision-making model, which as we know is really about doing our best to figure out what the individual would really want and not what we, the family or society in general might consider the best way to proceed. They go on to point out that taking risks and making mistakes are rights that are recognized by the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Human and of Persons with Disabilities. This makes it crucial to do our best to engage with the person in attempting to establish their will and preferences and to employ such things as visual and communication aids to help tease out the individual's feelings when communication is difficult. It also means that the opinions of family members, while important, are secondary to those of the individual. They also point out that participants in this process have to be very careful to not make assumptions about how the patient would interpret risk based on their demography, gender, and other characteristics. And I like the interesting, we could talk a long time about what it means to think about risk in relation to a procedure, because there's always risks in both directions. But when we think about that, we have to re recall that it's, we have to try to avoid thinking that older persons may want less risk or that women may want to have a lower risk tolerance or that persons with one cultural background may have a particular point of view. These are prejudices that can enter into decision-making and about which we need to be alert. And some of our training, I said, well, you know, people are from Asia think this way, you know, and th these kinds of things can get us into trouble. Um, and they suggest that it may help to have the person who will assist with decision-making be matched by demographic and other factors with the individual. I found that an interesting idea, and you know, I can see developing a whole cadre of seniors with disabilities for employment in roles such as assisting with decision-making. Mm -hmm. So this article has a lot, you know, much of it's not really new, and the paper includes a bit too much legalese for my preference, but we all deal with these issues, and I, for one, found much food for thought. Did this discussion break up any issues or thoughts you'd like to discuss, Carl or Mallory? Uh, yeah, I mean, this could be a whole podcast on its own. Uh, and I, I really like the advice not to assume just because a person comes from a particular ethnic or religious background, that that individual will automatically have a certain belief or treatment preference. Uh, that's just uh, good person-centered care, you know, kind of cultural humility and also recognizing the possibility or reality of our own implicit biases uh, as to uh, different uh, groups. And I think supported or shared decision-making are great ideas when they're feasible for people with mild to moderate cognitive impairment. But we're seeing more and more patients, especially in our long-term care settings, nursing homes, uh, who are both unrepresented and incapacitated. And that is a whole 
separate and complex bioethical issue. Like if you have no idea what the person would have told you uh, when they were fully intact. So since we default to the most aggressive and invasive treatments, it can be challenging to get these patients the compassionate care that's truly in their best interest, especially at the end of life. Uh, Mallory, any additional insight into that? No, I think I'll just echo what y'all have said and, and just suggest to our readers or our listeners that they take a good read here. I think there's a lot of different pieces to this article that are, are well-written and really do bring food for thought as we all sort of go through our own processes and exploration of where our biases might lie. Um, this is just a really thoughtful piece. Thank you. Uh, so there's one last paper to discuss and it's a good one. This one pre presents results of a survey of direct care workers like certified nursing assistants and home health aides about their experiences with work-related frustration and burnout and discusses whether and if so, how this may lead to resident abuse. This is a challenging topic about which few data are available. Uh, I mean, uh, you will frequently see uh, accounts in the media of abuse in nursing homes and so on, but there's not a lot of research on it. So I'm eager to learn what this study tells us. Uh, Dr. Brown, what are the take-home points from this paper? Absolutely. So I think it's not news to any of us that many of our older adult patients rely on these direct care workers for assistance in managing painful and frustrating health conditions. However, on the flip side of that, it's estimated that about one in six older adults are mistreated, abused, neglected, or subject to financial theft, sometimes by these direct caregivers. Direct care workers frequently encounter difficult interactions with the patients they serve and experience frustration and burnout likely because of it. The work done here tested a model in which predictors of caregiver abuse risk were mediated by symptoms of burnout. 206 direct care workers, and just to clarify this, that includes certified nursing assistants, patient care technicians, home health aides, and medical assistants, were asked to complete the caregiver abuse screen difficulty with emotional regulation scale, and the abbreviated Maslach burnout inventory. The study found that more than half of the direct care workers surveyed endorsed significant risk for engaging in patient abuse. Emotional dysregulation and low workplace satisfaction were associated with greater risk of patient abuse, and these associations were mediated by burnout facets of depersonalization and emotional exhaustion. This study provided some preliminary support for a model of caregiver abuse in which underlying difficulties regulating emotions convey risk for caregiver abuse via burnout faucets, including emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. Enhancing basic emotion regulation skills and reduce, reducing burnout in direct care staff may reduce the risk of abuse for older adults, thus providing training necessary to help direct care workers manage their own emotions in order to better recognize, understand, and respond effectively to the needs of older adults may reduce staff burnout and consequently lower the risk of abuse for older adults. Yeah, and Phil, I suspect you'll have some comments on this, but I, I just, um, it's a little shocking to think that such a high percentage of our direct care staff, whom I think most of us as clinicians admire to an unbelievable degree. They have such an important job and, and uh, you know, just 
I'm in awe of, of the work our CNAs do in the nursing homes, but that so many of them are at risk for possibly abusive behavior. And I wonder uh, if, you know, doing these types of screens might help uh, place people who we feel might be at higher risk for abuse uh, with patients who um, are not cognitively impaired, because obviously the really vulnerable ones are the ones who cannot describe what somebody did to them, but that just that kind of popped into my mind. Uh, Phil, what are your thoughts? You know, it's interesting. Um, first of all, I believe the message. I believe the message. I don't necessarily believe the statistics because, you know, it's just, it's almost impossible to go into a nursing facility and say, we want to talk to all your staff about abuse and abuse potential. So hmm. there's little research. And th what they did in this study is they, basically got on social media and they put out a huge net to try to get volunteers to come in and answer the uh, questionnaire. Uh, I mean, do it online and they paid him $25. So this is not a representative sample. Hmm. It's a, you know, it's volunteers from a kind of broad net. On the other hand, you know, we all know that we're not at our best when we have inadequate sleep, as we already discussed, <laughs> the pressure at work or problems at home, you know, and, and when the work is really stressful, it just, you can understand, you know, we've been there and you know, humane work solution, a humane work situation is really what you want. Plus attention to mental health issues and um, some of the things we've been talking about and that this issue talks about in some of the other articles. Um, it, we all we work with tough situations in long-term care. Hmm. That's for sure. Well, thanks for all that. Excellent discussion. That is going to wrap it up for this month's Jamda On The Go podcast. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, Jamda, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond. And by the way, uh, Dr. Sloan, I, I recently saw some impact factor statistics. Would you like to share that accomplishment with our listeners for a moment? Well, you know, we try to do the best we can to provide a journal that merges science with clinical um, relevance. And um, we were gratified that impact factor is just a number that talks about how frequently articles are cited. And our impact factor was among the highest in the, um, of the aging related journals. And it was quite a jump from previous years. And so we're just happy to see that JAMDA is um, getting some recognition. Yeah, I, I've been on the editorial board for many years and uh, you know, I've, it's never been anywhere near as high. I think it was, was it eight or something like that? 7.8, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, who would ever have thought that, uh, um, you know, Dr. Morley's fantastic work, your predecessor would, uh, would be, uh, you know, exceeded. And I, I'm just super proud of the work that you've done. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, all right, Dr. Sloan and Brown, thank you for spending your time with Jamda on the go. We'll see you next month. And references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J-A-M-D-A. Until next time. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda On The Go.
If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals.